Hi, everyone, and welcome to this latest episode of Animal Chat with me, Harry Ekman. And me, Matt Payne. How you doing, Matt? I'm doing well, mate. How the devil are you? I'm very well this week, and I hope all of our listeners are doing well. Um, I had a thought, Matt. Now, you, you've got a couple of dogs, don't you? I do, yes. I am the owner of a Labrador and a slightly bonkers Cocker Spaniel. Because you used to be a bit fearful of dogs, didn't you? I did, yeah. Until about a year and a half ago, I was terrified. I, I even once was on a really, like, challenging estate in a part of Manchester that will remain nameless with a colleague of mine. I had a, a dog literally launch itself at me, and I nearly died on the spot, okay? It was so scary. The only problem was it was a chihuahua. But to me, <laughs> chihuahua... Everyone what you're asking, Harry, that chihuahua was going to mess me up. I knew it. It knew it. And, you know, but I used to, it also, that did actually happen. And I was terrified. But I used to have to sort of work in communities, leafleting, door knocking, all that sort of stuff. And honestly. Was it chihuahua heavy then? It was, it was pitbull heavy. Um, where I used to work and rotty heavy. But I used to like literally put a leaflet through the door and you would just hear this kind of like, boom, against the door as this dog would rip. Honestly, I'd, I used to have to send volunteers in from <laughs> the yard. Without any warning. No. Do, you, do you mind just uh, putting these flyers through these doors, particularly that door over there? Uh, just like, no no reason, no reason at all, but just... Uh, yeah, if it said caution, dog, it'd be like, listen. So, yeah, I used to genuinely be really scared around dogs. And when you're fearful around them, particularly big dogs... I don't know about like chihuahuas, like chihuahuas. They, you know, you've got that whole thing where, you know, where you feel like they can sense it and it makes situations even worse. So I used to just take myself out of situations. Whereas now literally there are, I had a meeting the other day where I had a fully grown Labrador on my lap and just lied there throughout the whole meeting with quite senior people where I work. So um, <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. So, but yeah, it's a bit of a change. Why are you asking, man? Why are you, why, well, why are you asking about my dogs? How dare you? Why am I asking about your dogs? Well, I was having this conversation recently and it might've been with you or it might be with somebody else, but we were having this conversation about whether you like to admit it or not. Anybody that owns a dog, they have an imaginary voice for their dog. Like when you talk to your dog, you imagine your dog talking back to you and everybody has this feeling of how their dog speaks back to them and i know that you i know that you have a voice for your dog and i think the listeners really want to hear your dog's voice are you trying to ruin my career i think you're doing a pretty good job of that yourself but (laughs) (laughs) i mean this podcast is not doing either of us any favors to be honest i want to hear your your dog voice okay so, so first of all the labrador okay the labrador okay you need to imagine he looks like Brad Pitt in his heyday. He's so <laughs> handsome, but he's th- I, I've caught him several times staring at a wall. <laughs> like, literally, he'll just be staring right at the wall or a door. Or his favourite is the corner. So he'll literally go in the corner and just stare for a while. So he's kind of got a voice like, oh, mm, oh what was that? What, uh, hello? Was, who am I? What's going on here? Oh, hello. So that's him. And then the other one, which is Cocker Spaniel. So if you watch the film um, Over the Hedge. Yes. You know the little squirrely thing that's meant... Yeah. That's kind of like a bit hyper, and then it has red bull. That is what my Cocker Spaniel's like. So she's kind of like, hello, hello there. What What's going on? Hello, what are you doing? Oh, oh, when am I having this? What do you... 
Excuse me. Your question. Why are you doing that? What am I doing that? Where's my coin? Let me have a biscuit. Can I have a biscuit now? Hello. She's very posh. She's she's very posh. Your cocker spaniel. That's working class where I'm from. Uh, <laughs> ba boom. Um, so Harry, because I ruined my career just now. What you have one beautiful dog, don't you? I have a dog. I have a rescue French bulldog, and yeah, she's <laughs> she's a ridiculous dog. She has a voice that. You have well, to. I, 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 I just have to do it. I can't yeah. even really describe yeah. it. She's she's not the smartest dog in the world. She but she is really lovely. But everything is like her favorite thing at the time she's doing it. And I don't think that's unique to dogs, but it's certainly very much her. And her voice is um, she talk like this a little bit. She go <laughs> I go out for a walk. It's my favorite thing. And I'm chasing the ball. And the ball is my favorite thing. And um, oh, and I'm going down to the beach and I'm digging the sand. And the sand is my favorite thing. And oh, you have a biscuit. And the biscuit is my favorite thing. And that's that's her voice. It's a it's quite a gruff voice for, for a small female dog. But she sounds like the buddy in like an Al Pacino movie. <laughs> I think she's like, an amalgamation. Uh, I don't even know where she's from. No. I'm English. We live in Portugal. My wife is Portuguese and she's a French bulldog. So it's just a complete mashup of accents and all kinds of things. Oh, God. It's like a bit of New York. Hello there. Well, well. <laughs> I don't know What's what, what she, what she But that's how I imagine her talking. Yeah. And actually, I do the voice when she's talking to me. I'll, I'll talk to her in her own voice. And... Hey, what, Harry? That's our reputation in ruins. It certainly is. Yeah. So. We have a very exciting guest this week. I've got a little bit of a clue here, Matt. See if you can guess. So, we've got a backing track here. I need you to introduce... We are... You're about to introduce somebody who is a doctor, who is globally respected as one of, if not the leading... Lion conservationist. Okay, so are you telling me that maybe that was not the best theme tune? No, to... We've just done voices of our dogs, okay? Yeah. But has led to my girlfriend, as we're doing this, WhatsApping me going, what the fuck? <laughs> okay. And we're okay. about to introduce... Who are we about to introduce? A, well, you know how it... This is, this is like, you know how excited I am about this. So... Yes. When I probably say this in the podcast, and I don't care, when Harry and I, when we set this up, I had two people who I really wanted to get on the list above anyone else. One was Tim Harrison, and the other one by far was Amy Dickman. And for some reason, and when you listen to the intro to this podcast, you will agree with me that you find this really weird that somebody who is so well-renowned and respected like Amy Dickman would agree to come on this podcast. <laughs> but she has. So our episode today is with the incredible Amy Dickman. She is like... Oh, Jesus. Oh. Carry on, Matt. Carry on. I'm going to try and do this with that. <laughs> so Amy Dickman is the... We are away. Sorry, Matt. Carry on. <laughs> <laughs> Amy Dickman, Dr. Amy Dickman, is the founder of the Ruaha. Now, there's a funny story with that, Harry, because you and I had to write that out phonetically for this interview because we, yes, we did. I know how to we, say it. Neither of us could work out how to pronounce Ruaha. Ruaha. The Ruaha. Con- oh, God's sake. The Ruaha <laughs> Carnival, a carnival project in Tanzania. She's the founder 
of that incredible project, which to me is the, one of the leading examples of human behavior change as a way of tackling human wildlife conflict. Amy is the leader in this area, in my opinion. She is also a member of the equally brilliant Pride Alliance, which is a group of six women who are tackling lion conservation projects across Africa. Please go and check their website out. We'll put it in the link as well as all the links to, to Amy, to Ruaha um, afterwards. And she's just amazing and, you know, so funny, so intelligent so dedicated and big fan of uh, of 80s pop songs as well hopefully <laughs> um so so yeah amazing she's amazing so she really is and she is the first guest that has had a musical introduction so yeah i think that's pretty special too i think that's pretty special too um <laughs> so I'm without sorry. any further ado mate really sorry amy you know we, <laughs> i was expecting high brow You've heard our podcast. That was never going to happen. <laughs> so is Amy, in fairness. So um, I am so excited to be sharing this and to have had Amy on the podcast. And I can't wait for everyone to listen to it. So should we do it? Yep. Here we go. Episode eight of the Animal Chat podcast with Amy Dickman. You had quite an unusual start, didn't you, into research when David McDonald gave you your first job. It wasn't lions to start with, was it? No, no. I sound like when I've looked up your background, Matt, it was very similar in that I'd always been passionate about big cats in particular. There's a picture of me when I was very small. I meant to be feeding my young sister at the time with a bottle and she's sort of lolling. Her head is lolling back in some extremely unsafe way. The bottle's on the floor and I'm just looking at this big book of big cats. <laughs> yeah. It was sort of that passion went all the way through and so I always when I started to look into it a bit more when I looked at what a career might look like David's unit at Wildcree the Wildlife Conservation Research Unit at Oxford was an obvious one where I thought god that is the dream place where I'd love to work because every picture I saw there were people working on lions and tigers and leopards and it, it really seemed to be the epitome of everything that I wanted to do so when I finally did my zoology degree and was looking for a job I was very fortunate that at the time, these graduate scholarships came up at Wild Crew, and uh, I went up to have an interview, which I have to say I fluffed entirely because I managed to get cervid and corvid mixed up. And to any zoologist listening, one of the cervid is a deer and a corvid is a crow. And if you mix those up when you're describing the animal, it all goes horribly wrong. So <laughs> despite that particular low point in my zoological career, they said they were interested in having me do some work with them. So when I went up and joined Wildcry, I was completely thrilled. I remember walking in to David and having real sort of hero worship, waiting to hear what my study species was going to be. And he told me that he wanted me to work on water shrews, which I'd never heard of, which are about 15,000 times smaller than a lion. So I wasn't thrilled about that. But, you know, I figured we've all got to pay our dues. So I started working on water shrews. I say working very abstractly because I never saw one. I still question whether they actually <laughs> exist in Oxfordshire. And then things got bigger. I went on to water voles and David tried to persuade me to do a PhD on water voles, which I declined. And I kept saying, I really want to work on big cats. And, you know, I'm just I was so desperate. But it seemed even then, even within Wild Crew, it seemed very hard. How did you make that leap and get to be out in Africa doing all the sort of stuff that we all grew up watching and be part of that? And finally, I then worked on a few other things, badges and other stuff, UK work in Wild Crew. 
and then got a bit more, just got a bit more frustrated that I really was impatient to get out there. And at the time, then I noticed an advert at Cambridge for people to go and join the Meerkat project out there. And of course, Meerkats aren't actually cats, although I figured it's right there in the name. I could at least persuade some Americans maybe that they are cats. <laughs> so I went to join, I went to an interview there and got offered a, a position at the Meerkat project. And obviously people at Oxford particularly hate people leaving to Cambridge. So when I came back and said to David, look, I'm going to go because I just want African experience. Uh, he said, no, 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 we've got a woman joining who's working on cheetahs in Namibia. And what about going out and helping work with cheetahs in Namibia? And I said, yes, that sounds good. So that was the start of my African experience. And I'm right in saying that that person was at Laurie Marker. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So she was joining Wild Crew to do her PhD. And so I had the opportunity to go out originally for six months to go and join her project in Namibia, which was amazing and I was really you know completely wet behind the ears you know 21 years old just you know this the first time I'd ever been to Africa and I remember it's something I'd talked about for well over a decade of wanting to go out to Africa and wanting to work on big cats but at that moment I was standing at Heathrow and going out and thinking I have no idea whether what the reality is going to be like compared to all these things that I thought it might be like and it was quite intimidating to head out for the first time and really think this is where all those dreams actually hit you know a real amount of reality out there in Africa. And when you finally got there, when you touched down in Africa and got to the place where you were going to be working, how did that feel? Because like you said, you know, that's been a lifetime of wishes and hopes coming to realization. So what was it like? Do you, do you remember the moment where you first looked around and just went, wow, I can't believe I'm actually here now? Well, I remember that vividly coming in on the plane the first time on this Comair plane from Johannesburg up to Namibia, up to Windhoek, and staring out of the window and everyone else was sort of, you know, reading the magazine and eating their in-flight snacks, whatever. And I had my face pressed against the window and staring down at this landscape, just huge vista below and looking, thinking, my God, there are elephants down there. There are lions down there. And I was, and it didn't cross my mind. It sounds ridiculous looking back. I never gave a thought to the people living down there. I was so excited Hmm. by the fact that there was this incredible wildlife, you know, all these things that I dreamed about were right there beneath me. And I was so excited. I still remember just staring at that, wondering when we were going to get low enough that I could see an elephant or something like that. And, uh, we didn't and then we landed and went up to Namibia and met Laurie and everyone it was all very good but even the very first realization was the very next morning when I was about to leave my dorm room where we were in and we had these glass doors and as I went to put my hand on the door I saw this huge furry leg poking up and I realized it was a baboon spider and so this huge tarantula type spider and it was sitting on the door and I knew that if I opened the door then it would be in the room and it would just drop off into the room. And I thought, I can't have this huge tarantula running around my bedroom. And I thought, this is it. I can't believe it. I'm trapped in my room by an invertebrate after decades of saying I want to work in Africa. I'm too scared to open the door because of a spider. So that was sort of a reality check moment. And I looked around and I hastily climbed out of the window and pushed it off the door with a stick. So uh, that was my way of getting out of that. But it, it was just the very first insight into the fact that the realities of being out there are going to be slightly different from, you know, the dreams of it all. I can imagine as well, for people that are listening that might not know, Laurie Marker is, she founded the Cheetah Conservation Fund. And what an amazing introduction to human wildlife conflict, because correct me if I'm wrong, Amy, that in Namibia, you've got such a huge amount of agriculture and a lot of farmers routine, routinely trap cheetahs that come onto their land and mm-hmm. kill livestock. And they do it, they can often get many cheetahs at once in these large traps. And because cheetahs yep. tend to congregate around the same trees and other sort of um, markers in the landscape to mark and communicate with one another, like many cat species, but the farmers tend to know that they come there, so they'll put traps. And then mm-hmm. we're shooting 
so many before Laurie started that project. So what, was that a really good introduction to the human-wildlife conflict for it you? It was an amazing introduction. As you say, Laurie was a complete pioneer in this when she first headed out to Namibia in the 70s, I think, and um, mm. just was, you know, this woman from America going out there and learning all about it and listening to what was happening, what the farmers were talking about, who were killing hundreds and hundreds of cheetahs a year. Mm. And in Namibia, it does have vast protected areas, but cheetahs and wild dogs tend to be pushed out of those, not pushed out, but they tend to prefer areas where they don't have those larger carnivores like lions and spotted hyenas they do very well on the commercial farmland but of course there they do create the conflict with uh, farmers by eating goats and sheep and then the farmers as you say would realize that there are these play trees these scent marking trees in the landscape and if you put traps around them you can kill entire social groups of cheetahs and do that again and again and again so the offtake of the cheetahs was huge and I remember going in there and being horrified knowing a little bit about it and being horrified by the amount of killing and what was happening and again seeing the farmers a bit as the enemy and I was very impressed right from the start and have been all the way through that Laurie's Laurie's approach of not seeing the farmers as the enemy but understanding that they have a reason they're not evil people there is a reason they are doing it and you have to understand the reason and try to change the drivers of what's making them do it because they're not doing it for fun they're doing it because it is something they have to do and the fact that she took such an inclusive and open approach was something that I think has been seminal to her success and really important and something I've tried to continue as well. Yeah, totally. And I mean, she pioneered the, I don't know if she pioneered it, pioneered it, sorry, <laughs> can't say that word today, pioneered. <laughs> um, I think she pioneered the use of garden. Maybe, maybe just stop that word. Yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll start that again and I'll use a much easier word for you to say. <laughs> She she was at the forefront of oh, that one. Laurie was at the forefront of uh, using guarding dogs for livestock and also working with the farmers to was it to record any cheetahs they were killing, but also to phone Laurie instead of going for a gun, going for a phone or contacting Absolutely. Laurie and take them off. And so yeah, so the dogs that she was using, the Anatolian Shepherd dogs, so the breed they kind of settled on eventually, they've been used for millennia in Turkey um, to protect against sort of bears and wolves. But this was the first time they'd been used in Southern Africa. And so Laurie brought them over and started this guarding dog project. And again, in a very, as you say, in a very non-judgmental way, saying to farmers, we understand this is a real problem for you. But if you're having a problem with the cheetah, and even if you have it in the cage trap and you're going to shoot it, please call us just so that we can get more information on these cats. And I remember multiple times going out um, to farmers where they'd caught a cat and they were absolutely sure that they were going to shoot it. You know, they said, you can come and you can measure it, you can do what you need, but we are going to shoot it afterwards. We don't want it on our land. And so we would go and we would anaesthetize it and we would engage the farmers all the way through. You know, we would make them hold the drip bag when we're doing the subcutaneous drips for the fluid while the cat's under anesthesia. We would get them to listen to the heartbeats and just record it. And the whole way through, you'd say, this is fine. Yeah, this is just what we have to do. And we understand you're going to want to kill this cat. And we're not judging that. But can you just help us in our processes? And I never saw, of course, one farmer that did that and listened to the heartbeat and, and connected with that cat as something other than a problem that then actually turned around and wanted to kill it at the end. Mm -hmm. So they would then, they would say, take it away, release it somewhere else. But gradually, gradually, they would see both us as being willing to listen and engage with them, but also the cats as being something they could empathise with a bit more than just as a problem. Did you see that change Obviously, they had that connection with that cat. They'd had that interaction with that cat. Were they able to immediately transfer that to all cheetahs? Like it completely changed their perception of cheetahs? Or was there a almost like a transition period? It was like this cat, because I have the connection with it, 
we can let this one go, but I'm still maybe thinking the same things about the other ones. Yeah, I think it's more the latter, that certainly it's not a total epiphany where they think, actually, I never thought before that cheetahs are this living being and I didn't realise what I was doing. It's, of course, not as simplistic as that. It's just the fact that they connected with that animal and they, it started a dialogue of maybe there was an alternative non-lethal approach. But the way to have them tolerate cats on their land was then to use that opening to really talk to them about what problems they were having. You know, had they thought about maybe using the guarding dogs? Had they thought about you know, which sort of herding practices were they using? What benefits were they getting from cheetahs being on their land? Those sorts of discussions just to open a door to show that maybe there were different ways of, of them benefiting. Things like, for instance, the bush clearance. So they use something called bush block in Namibia, which is taking out this invasive bush, which is a problem for the farmers as well, and is then turned into briquettes, charcoal briquettes. And the farmers that engage in it sort of sign up to being predator-friendly farming practices. So they get a real benefit for engaging in these conservation-friendly practices. And it's all these long relationship building and discussion with the farmers just to open those doors and, and find creative solutions together. I'm guessing in these communities, there is wherever it is, whether it's with wildlife or whether it's with working equines or anywhere else, the way in which they handle a situation has been handed down from generation to generation. There's never really been a question of how these things should be done. And so how much pushback was there when you came in with uh, with these newfangled ideas of ways? And I know it was a discussion. I know it wasn't you going in there and saying, well, have you thought about doing this? But how much pushback was there because there was such a historical, family-oriented, handed-down way of handling things? Well, I think... There were different times. I can speak to that far better from my experience in Tanzania, because in that experience, we were the first ones. You know, I was the first Westerner to go in there and suggest these different approaches within those villages that I was working in. Whereas in Namibia, Laura had obviously been there for 20 years beforehand, so had opened the door to have those dialogues. But from using that experience, and then when I set up my project in Tanzania with the villagers there, using the same kind of thing, a very hands-off, a very non-judgmental approach, where we just said we want to understand where you're coming from. It was a fascinating time and it took a long, long time to build the relationships that we needed. But I remember we wanted when we, so I did my master's and my PhD in Tanzania. We talked to lots of people about the problems they were facing with large carnivores. And they all said, you know, we hate these animals. We don't want them around, but we don't kill them. And I thought that just seems unlikely. You know, if I was you living in the way you are with your children at risk from lions, your livestock at risk, which are everything to do with your livelihood, you know, I would kill the lions. So it seemed unlikely that they weren't. It seemed they were unwilling to discuss it. And so then when I got my fellowship at Oxford, we started up the field project, myself and two Tanzanians living on in three tiny little tents under a tree in a Tanzanian village just out in the bush. And we thought, we have to live here. We have to understand how people are living to understand their perspectives and the threats they face. And even living right amongst the people there, trying everything that we could to try to connect with them, it took over two years before people would be willing to sit down and talk to us openly about large carnivores and the fact they were killing them. So there was a huge amount of resistance to the risk of outsiders and the risk of opening up to somebody else and their view on how you should act around and take decisions around things like carnivores. So you have to show you're in it for the long term to build up those relationships. Obviously, we're talking about the Ruaha carnivore project that you started up in Tanzania. Was okay. that almost scepticism or lack of trust of the community with you for those first two years? Was that based on historical experience or just a sort of a lack of trust of other people coming in and, and looking to work with them? What was this sort of the reason for that sort of lack of wanting to cooperate with you straight away? I think it was very multifaceted. There's been a long history of distrust of conservation ever since actually the park had been gazetted. 
um, which was sort of 50 years previously to then. But still, there was all these discussions in the village about how when the park was gazetted, then people's houses were burned down, they were pushed out. Those sorts of narratives would come up again and again, that people just didn't trust conservationists to value the lives of local villagers over the you know, the lives of wildlife. And so already it was seen as a conservation organisation, and that came with a lot of distrust. It was also personally, I know a lot of the young men were getting benefits specifically from killing lions. And that was something that they recognised that if we were coming in with different views on how you might live alongside lions and very uninformed views, I've never really lived alongside lions in the way that they have. But we're coming in with very foreign views and they were very suspicious. The tribe that we dealt with a lot, the Barabay, were the ones who were doing most of the lion killing. And they are known to be very secretive, very hostile, very resistant to outside views. So we knew that was going to be a really difficult struggle right from the start to try to get them in particular to open up to us. And it, and it was, it was deeply, deeply challenging. And for many reasons, there was witchcraft fears. There were fears of me being a woman. I was the first white person that some of them had ever seen. All these things sort of coalesce to make it a very challenging situation to build trust in. And it's strange because there's never really been a history of white people <laughs> causing any problems. <laughs> so why, why on earth would why they be suspicious of that? I know, bizarre. I know. I mean, um, how did you choose that particular location to start the project? What year was that, by the way? When did Ruaha... When so did I finished first... my PhD in, well, in 2009. In that year, I was given the fellowship. And we knew from the PhD work that the Barabaig were the ones that were doing lots. When people talked about lion killing, if they talked at all about it, they would talk about the Barabaig and the fact that lion killing was important to them and that they did most of the killing. So we knew we wanted to set up on village land because much of us sorely tempted to be in the park and you know, at a nice lodge and drinking gin and tonics in the evening, all those sorts of things. I recognised that we actually needed to be on the village land. And if we're going to be on the village land, we wanted to be in a Barabag area. So we looked around at where could be a good place. And there was this village that had reasonably good road access. That was important because the field camps before that I've been in, you would often get cut off. Um, in the wet season, it just makes it much more difficult. So it had good all year round road access, it had lots of Barabag there. The village leaders who talked to us were happy for us to sort of lease off a small amount of the village land and just set up camp there. And that was sort of how it started there. We just stayed and lived there trying to listen out. And we would hear things like at night, you would hear clear celebrations of lion killing. So they'd be singing, they'd be dancing, people would be making lion calls. But if you walked up there, they would come out and be very intimidating in the bush. You know, these warriors with spears telling us to go away. They denied there was any lion killing. So it was very challenging but we chose that area specifically because we knew it was likely to be a hub of killing and indeed in the first year that we set up the project we had records where we found 25 lions killed uh, around just around that single village and that's in a tiny area you know less than 500 square kilometers so the amount of killing was sky high and it was clearly just indicative of a massive problem of human carnival conflict there. And that killing there, that was culturally a rite of passage, wasn't it, for the young men? So yes, it's, these two things are very closely entwined. So it's a mixture of conflict because large carnivals were obviously a threat to people and their livestock. But very closely entwined with that was this cultural prestige associated with killing lions. And so if there was either an actual attack on cattle or an attack on a person, or even the suspicion that it might happen, so a lion was coming close, the young men would leap on that opportunity to go out and to get band together in this group of young warriors and go out and try and spear a lion. And the first warrior to throw the spear that hit the lion would be rewarded. They would cut the front paw off, they would take a central claw, and they would be rewarded by being able to go around all these households in the village and get gifts of cattle. So it was a way that the young men got wealth and they got status as being these brave warriors in the community. So those were two 
very, very strong drivers of why people were still killing lions. And what was it like to make the first breakthrough with the community you were talking about, Amy? And how did that come about? The first time you felt like the community were listening or yeah. you were able to listen to them? So there was a very hectic week that happened. We were up at camp and there was, again, just a very small number of us. But I remember we tried and we tried to go to these community meetings. We tried all these different ways of breaking in and they had completely failed. And then we ended up putting up a um, solar panel at camp to charge our laptops. And suddenly, within a couple of days, the warriors started turning up to charge their mobile phones, which still now I, I kick myself for not thinking of that, of course, this is a resource they really need in the bush. They used to walk over 10 kilometers to actually go and go and charge their mobile phones. So we suddenly had a resource that they wanted and they would come to the camp for. And this was the softening, the beginning of a softening and the ability to us to start to talk to each other, not about lion killing or anything difficult, but just the start of an engagement. And then about a week after that, I remember sitting at camp and there was very clearly celebration to do with the lion kill happening. And we thought, well, maybe this is our chance to capitalise on the relationship that we've built and we will go up there and, and start to have a dialogue. And it was about 11 o'clock at night. I remember it was a very dark night. It was moonlit, but very cloudy. So myself and these Tanzanian guys headed off through the bush and we ended up going on foot because we obviously wanted to be not charging up there in a car and we just couldn't drive through the thick bush. And as we were walking up towards it, all three of us suddenly stopped I remember feeling that prickling feeling on the back of your neck. And I thought, oh, there's danger somewhere. And is it a lion? Is it a hyena? What's going on? And then suddenly the clouds parted and the moon shone down. And we were entirely surrounded by a group of warriors with their spears up. And I thought, oh, and the clouds went back and I plunged into pitch blackness thinking, oh, my God, this is how we're going to die. We're going to get speared to death in the bush by these crazy warriors that we've been charging their phones as well. That was like added insult to injury. So... <laughs> <laughs> so one of our guys stepped forward and he said, Utafiti, Utafiti, which is research. We're just doing research. And they basically said, you're crazy. You know, we've been having all these Maasai guys coming up and trying to steal our cattle. There'd been a whole bout of cattle rustling and there'd been some various killings of warriors from different tribes. So we had unwittingly stepped into this uh, scenario and they said, the only reason we didn't spear you from far off was that we realized you were making so much noise walking through the bush. That there's no way you could be Maasai. <laughs> and so that was the first step towards us actually saying something. We said, God, well, look, we're just down at that camp. You know that camp. Can't you come down and talk to us about the lion killing? You know, we've been there for two years. And Shabani, one of the guys who was there, who was the leader of the young warriors at the time, he said, actually, he said, yeah, we would be interested to come down and speak to you. So they're agreed the next day to come down and have a, a meeting which was amazing you know we managed to have this meeting with them and we explained that you know we were not the Tanapa National Parks we were not the wildlife division we were just doing research all we wanted to do is to understand this and see whether there was a way that they could get whatever they were getting from lion killing through lion conservation you know whether there was just a different way that we could get a shared outcome and they seemed so positive they were happy I mean to be fair they'd brought a lot of the home brewed banana beer so that helped with the happiness um but it was really productive i remember walking away from that meeting we thought we've cracked it it was the high point of the project because you know it was just amazing after two years to finally have that relationship and within a week those same group of warriors went out and killed seven lions really close to camp wow. and that was just i remember being devastated i remember thinking this is it we cannot work with them they're throwing it all back in our faces you know we've we've been so open and so upfront and we cannot work with them. I called a really good friend of mine, Leela Hazar, who runs Lion Guardians in Kenya, and said, so we can't do it. We're just we're going to go a totally different way. You know, we'll just do a heavy-handed enforcement kind of thing. And she said, no. She said, this is a test. She said, you have told them what you value. You value lions. And you've said you also value your relationship with the community. 
So they are seeing whether you really value the relationship with the community more than you value the lions. And she said, I've had to watch lions speared in front of me and do nothing. She said, you have to do nothing. And so sure enough, we did nothing. We measured the carcasses. Everyone knew we knew. And then within about a week, uh, they came back to the camp and they said, okay, they invited us down to their traditional meeting in the bush the first time that certainly a Westerner had been down there. And they said, now we want to work with you. And they really then sat and explained all the reasons that they killed lions, you know, the importance for warriors and bravery and the threat they were posing to themselves and their livestock. And that was really the start of a relationship that has persisted now for the best part of 10 years. Wow. Was that something that when you went down there, first of all, and started investigating, finding out, speaking to them, learning about them, doing all of this research, was the intention always to then turn that into a solution-based project? So the master's and the PhD was very much just understanding it. That was more academic. The fellowship with Oxford, the remit of it was simply to set up an internationally significant conservation project. That was all I was told. And I thought, well, Vroor has the obvious place for it. So that was definitely under the fellowship setting up. The project was very much, even though it was still academic, it's still based within the University of Oxford. It's absolutely meant to be results-oriented, solutions, impactful conservation. You know, we've talked about the community for a little bit there, Amy, but I just wanted to bring the focus back on you for a second. What, what was it like for you living in Tanzania at the time? How did, did it take some adjustment? As you said, you, you were accompanied by two Tanzanians. You were being surrounded by warriors in a bush late at night in the darkness. Did it take a little bit of adjusting to get, or did you, you know, was it, was it lonely? Were you too busy to even feel like that? What was it like throughout that whole period for you as well? Oh, no, it was a huge emotional roller coaster. Everything from, I mean, loneliness absolutely underpinned a huge amount of it. Because even with the two Tanzanian guys who were great, and all of our Tanzanian team have been amazing ever since, you know, it's just, it's the fact that you are still by yourself. I was the only Westerner there. I was the only woman. It was just, there was no one else. You didn't share anything with anyone else. You don't have that shared cultural history or background where you sit down and you'd laugh about some shared TV program you used to watch. It sounds so silly, but it is that feeling of being very isolated from. I don't know, from people that, that you are part of their tribe almost. And I remember going into town once, because we used to be cut down the bush for a long time, going back up to the local town of Ringa and seeing a Westerner across the road and thinking, and I had this really weird compulsion to rush over and start talking to them because <laughs> it felt like recognising someone who I knew I'd have something else in common with that I just wasn't obviously getting, particularly with the Barabag. And even with the Townsend team, we had a lot of um, just differences, of course, because we, we have very different lives. And so I think loneliness was huge. Then I and then there are just massive ups and downs. I mean, I cried in my tent many, many times about when things were going wrong or when it seemed particularly when we would find these carcasses. I remember once finding the carcass of a female lion with four cubs ready to be born. And just you would see this devastation. And I still, because I was driven by that real love for the animals originally, there's a lot of that that feels like you're witnessing this failure. You failed to stop these things. You're there's a lot of ups and downs. And then when you do see change, then there's real positive things that come with that. And so it is, it's a real roller coaster, but it's not, when I talk to people now, they always, they say, well, you're so brave. And I think I'm absolutely not brave. I've been scared a thousand times out there, so many times. And I'm no more brave than anyone else out there. It's just, I don't know. I just, you see, like any of you have done, you see something you're passionate about and you try to work out what you can do to the best of your ability. I mean, we, we could do an entire two, three hour podcast about the Loha <laughs> project in particular, because it's, as Harry will tell you, I just think it's one of the best examples about human behavior change to improve both communities and wildlife. And I use it as an example at every opportunity I can to get people nice to, to watch. 
<laughs> Even when they haven't asked anything to do with the human being, like he'll find some way of shoehorning it into any conversation. Literally. That's good. You can be a raving ambassador. Yeah. <laughs> I like that title. Thank you. Um, <laughs> put that on the old Twitter handle. Um, do, do. Yeah. So I suppose the best way to start is, what would you say is the part of the project that has been running, like, say, I think for 10 years now that you're the most proud of? What's been the highlight for you? So I think the highlight for me was, and all these things evolve over time, you know, it isn't like you have a light bulb moment, you come up with a solution, it just, it ends up evolving as different problems and, and you try different things and some things work well and some things work badly. But for instance, we were doing benefits for a long time. And of course, we recognised and everyone knows that if you're going to live alongside dangerous wild animals, you have to, you know, have to have benefits that outweigh the costs. So we talked to the communities extensively, had lots of village meetings and they said, right, you know, we want investment in education health and veterinary medicine those would be the things with most value as a result of conservation so we invested in those we had school twinning we improved clinics we gave out livestock medicines to the local health authorities there and we just you know we did all these for several years and we found that people would wave at us and they would think it was great and we felt really happy but still people were killing carnivores because of course why wouldn't you why wouldn't you take the benefits and kill the carnivores and at the same time, we were trying to do our scientific work by putting out camera traps and, and looking at carnival populations, and people were stealing the camera traps because they didn't feel engaged. And, you know, again, why not? And so we thought, well, these things are not really achieving what we want. So we decided to bring them together and we decided to give the villagers the camera traps. And instead of us doing it, we trained and employed two villagers in each village to place camera traps out. We had these extensive discussions with the community. Where we said to them, you are going to get benefits dependent on how much wildlife is on your land. And so they got a certain number of points for every wild animal that they record on their camera trap. And we had this huge discussion. And I wanted a very simple system of like one to five points. And I got completely voted down because they wanted thousands of points. And I was trying to explain that we're doing it in groups of four. So it doesn't matter. But anyway, I lost that discussion. So now everything has thousands of points. And so basically, you know, if you get it, if you have a dick dick, you get a thousand points. If you have a wild dog, you get 20,000 points. So they were getting more points for more conflict-causing species and more dangerous species. And it was just that has, we have absolutely seen a huge change now in bringing those together and making the communities, the people who monitor and receive the benefits directly as a result, not of the project, but of the wildlife. That's probably the thing that I've been proud to see the change in, because I've seen that really, we've cut out the middlemen of us. We've gone straight down to them, sort of understanding that relationship. And at one point, you know, we talk, we try to get some metrics and we try to understand how it's working. But I remember having a story back from the village one day when they said a group of young men had gone out to hunt lions. And that the women in the community, who people always think are sort of slightly hidden behind the scenes, they actually have quite a lot of power within those communities. They stood up and they called these young men back in from the hunt, something we could never have done. And they said to them, you are killing the very thing that is enabling us to give birth safely and educate our children. So the women then put a ban across the whole village on lion and elephant hunting. And for us to hear this secondhand, so we weren't involved at all in any of those discussions. The women did it, the villagers and the elders enforced it. And it was just amazing to see that transition from those people seeing wildlife as a threat to something that actually needed community action to protect it. And that was really amazing for us. Such a wonderful, wonderful part of the project. When I was reading about it, it's just incredible that you've been able to achieve this. And the fact that it's these communities that are all working together, that are recognizing the value of these animals and that they bring across the cultures and, and that competitive spirit to see how many more you can have in your village to the next one and take pride in that is just an incredible initiative. It's, it's really, really powerful. 
Well, something I always think sort of initiatives are born of desperation usually, and and that was certainly the case here that we were what we were doing just wasn't quite connecting the dots. So once you see those dots connect, and as you say, it's making it relevant to them. And one of the really key things is that every month when we go and check the cameras, we take the pictures and we show them at the DVD nights. So we have these educational film nights in the village, and for them to just understand more about the wildlife that is on their land, and to connect to it and to feel some pride and some ownership, and is hugely important i think people need to feel that ownership and like you say the competition is important at some point uh, some of the villagers came back and they said to us we've got this problem because everyone used to put their camera traps along the streams and they were often demarcating the village boundaries and so they said they're pointing onto our village so that impala they're photographing is our impala so we need the point <laughs> <laughs> so we had to amend it so you couldn't put your camera trap within a kilometer of your village boundaries which then emerged that no one knew where the village boundaries actually were and we had to map them all out with them so it's always iterative but it was fascinating to see them start to, and then they would come in and say we're always coming second in our group of four how do we become first should we put aside a bit of land for wildlife or should we stop this guy we know is poisoning or whatever and we would be like you know the threats in your landscape you know who's doing what and the fact that they are in charge of their solutions was really important as well that's incredible so just to contextualize it a little bit, what exactly is the situation with lions? What are we talking about when we're talking about numbers and the threat and putting the work that you're doing in a context of the species and of Africa? So lions, I think people are always horrified when they realize how much threat lions are under. I mean, lions have been absolutely seminal to people since the dawn of humankind. You know, Since we had cave lions living alongside us, they have been the species that we have put on flags and we have put on everything from chocolate bars to sports teams that we've named our kings after them. You know, they're the first animal when people carved animals out of woolly mammoth ivory for the first time. It was the head of a lion. You know, they're on the cave art. I truly believe they're an animal that is absolutely central to human culture. And it is shocking, I think, when people realise that we now have fewer wild lions left than rhinos. That, you know, they've disappeared from 90% of their range. There are only five populations left that have at least a 1,000 lions in them. And all of these factors, when you bring them together, I think it's terrifying to us when people think about endangered species or threatened species, they think of elephants and rhinos and gorillas. And when you say to them, there are 14 times more elephants or gorillas out there than lions now, people are really shocked by that. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be focusing on elephants and gorillas and everything else, but we should be recognising that this incredibly iconic animal is in real peril. And so the work that we are doing is in Ruaha, which is one of the biggest strongholds left for lions. It has, it's very difficult to put the numbers on it, but maybe it has 800 to 1,000 lions left of potentially 22 to 25,000 lions left across the continent. And we've recognised that while it's important what we're doing, you cannot then have programmes starting up like this and going through 10 years of figuring out blindly solutions. We have to accelerate these kinds of solutions. And to do that, you need to build capacity. And to build capacity, you need to build networks. So one of the ways that we have done that is working with a group of amazing women, happen to be women, it wasn't set that way, but five other women who are running incredible lion conservation projects across Africa. And we've formed together this Pride Lion Conservation Alliance to say, let's cut out as much of the stuff that wastes our time as possible, you know, fumbling around to figure out an HR strategy for your team is something none of us are skilled in, but we've all had to do individually. So let's share all our handbooks together. Let's share all of our methods, our successes, really importantly, our failures. And then by doing that, we can help both ourselves be more efficient in the lion conservation work. And critically for other young conservationists coming up, we can share all that knowledge and wisdom and scale up new approaches in different places so that we don't see this endless ongoing decline of lion populations and we target strategies to where they're sorely needed. When 
working together in organizations, as, as we all know, when it comes to animal welfare or wildlife conservation, isn't easy sometimes, but it's so powerful when it does work. And I think the Pride Line Conservation Alliance is a really good example of it. What do you think are some of the really tough choices, which I've heard you speak about before, Amy, and I think it's really important that people hear this. What are some of the tough choices that you as and other scientists working in lion conservation, and also it relates to other animals as well, but mm. specifically lion conservation. What are the tough yep. choices or challenges that you're facing right now in terms of you know the declining populations in Africa? Definitely. Well, it's interesting. One of the flip sides of it being such an iconic species is that people are extremely passionate about lion conservation. And while that, you would think that can only be a good thing, it can actually be very difficult if that's not also bound up with the real understanding of the complexity of lion conservation. When I've talked about how depressing the situation is for lions, the primary reasons for lion decline are habitat loss, loss of prey and conflict with people. Now, what happened, of course, a few years ago in 2014, especially when Cecil the lion was killed by a trophy hunter, the visibility of lion conservations have exploded onto the world stage. And trophy hunting in particular was sort of zeroed in on as this somehow implied major threat to lions. Now, of course, trophy hunting is not good for that individual lion. But what it does do is that it protects as much land across Africa in trophy hunting areas as in national parks. So what you don't want to do, as much as I personally dislike trophy hunting, what you don't want to do is take away trophy hunting and then you lose that land to agriculture, you would lose the habitat, you lose the prey. And that will actually exacerbate the lion decline and have a far, far bigger impact because you'll be taking away a minor threat to lions and increasing those major, major threats of habitat loss and prey loss and conflict with people. So in this debate, it's become a very polarised debate. And I think your podcast great because I think it has the ability to reach a lot of people on different sides of different perspectives of this discussion. And I think it's something that we all share this passion that we want wildlife there. We want wildlife to benefit local people. And we would really like to see as little wildlife killing as physically possible. And for me, much as I hate trophy hunting, I've seen how extensive the killing can be in areas where lions have no value at all. The kind of killing that we have around the villages in Ruaha was 100 times higher than would have been allowed in a trophy hunting area. And even worse than that, the deaths were horrible, snares, poisoning, ones they would have taken days to die. And they were often the killings of heavily pregnant females or reproductively active females. And those are the animals that if you take away, you will drive your population down far faster than shooting a male animal like Cecil, for instance. So while these things are very emotional, we have to be able to take some of that emotion out of it and look at the fact that there is no point stopping trophy hunting if in doing so you contribute to a major threat like habitat loss. So I'm all for taking it away if we can secure that land as a wildlife-based land use, but you just can't do it under tourism, for instance. You know, it, that won't work across most of the land. Tourism doesn't even benefit most of the national parks sufficiently at the moment. So we've got to come up with some innovative solutions and we need that discussion together rather than always fighting each other on these things. I couldn't agree more, Amy. And I think something that you don't get enough credit for personally is I think you've been very clear on where you stand on this issue that you don't like it but there are so many issues it's it's not just simply it's so easy to say well there are alternatives but we know that for example the reality is that a lot more lions are protected under hunting areas than national parks we we know that you know I think you've clearly said that you know you recognize that poorly managed hunting does lead to threaten local populations of lions but mm -hmm. on the flip side well-managed hunting the evidence is that there can be rises in populations like in Zimbabwe and Namibia and I think the Cortada uh, community in Mozambique where that was very carefully done on a very limited scale and there was an outcome but but I think it's 
I just wanted to, to bring up the issue as well about how even if we were to talk about simple things like tourism, let's say in a ideal world, we'll forget about the fact that you have to build roads. Uh, a lot of the time, a lot of areas are not viable because they're remote and dangerous. There's also a real issue with governance, I believe, and corruption and organisations like African Parks are doing a lot to try and combat that. But it's not just so, it's not as easy, sorry, as just creating it. Acting as a functioning initiative to help wildlife, it isn't necessarily as easy as that, I believe. Absolutely. I think you're totally right. So I think they say that every problem is simple from a distance. And I think that's so true in that all of these things seem obvious. Trophy hunting sounds horrible. You know, lions are declining. Why would you kill the last remaining lions, take out these big, impressive males? That must be bad. Let's just stop it. It's such a compelling narrative. And yet the real thorny issue is on the ground. If it is stopped, what else replaces it? And I think when you talk, absolutely, it can lead counterintuitively to um, increases even in the hunted species like lions or rhinos in several places. But far more importantly, it protects habitat for thousands upon thousands of other species, everything from insects to plants that is protected there that would also be lost if that land is converted to agriculture, say. So we need to have a much more holistic approach. And I think while all of us are passionate to try to develop alternatives and try to have a lot of different tools in the toolbox, let's develop and implement those first. And if they are successful and if they're good for the area and they're economically valuable, they will automatically be taken up. And so I think if we develop them and then we implement them, I mean, by we as the global community, not being imposed externally. But if we can develop that, it should be done that way. So it's more a question of timing for many of these disagreements rather than a fundamental ideology. It's just saying we have to take this in a very careful way to make sure that we don't take away a minor threat and replace it with a major threat. Absolutely. And I think that's the parallel there is the same for so many issues in animal welfare and animal conservation. The trophy hunting, obviously, because it's iconic species and because it seems so alien to so many people that don't do it, the majority of people don't do it. Mm -hmm. It's very easy to point a finger at it and go, this is the epitome of all that is wrong. This is evil. This has to stop. And obviously, you know, everybody that works in welfare and conservation wants it to stop. Mm -hmm. But the same could be said of farming or Absolutely. any other kind of animal management. It's fine to have the ideal that you are aiming for, the aspiration to end trophy hunting, to end factory farming, to end mm -hmm. all of the things that we want to end. But you have to have practical steps in order to achieve it. You can't just end it and assume that everything else is miraculously going to fall into place and you're not going to create a Pandora's box of other animal welfare problems as a result. Absolutely. I fully agree. I think unintended consequences, we have to all be, be very aware of them. And I always say to people who mistakenly think I'm some sort of proponent of trophy hunting, I'm not in any way, but I say to them, my goal is to minimize the overall amount of wildlife killing and to make sure that, that killing is at a sustainable rate. You know, so what I don't want to do is take away trophy hunting and then end up with 50 times more poisonings and snarings and experience. And I truly believe that even all the people who hate trophy hunting and sign campaigns and stuff, they also wouldn't want that. So you need to make sure that choice is clear that you're saying to them either you really just want it taken away and you don't care and this is going to be the consequence, or we all work together to find alternatives. And that could be anything from scaled up performance payments, the kind of thing we talked about, the camera trapping, but at bigger scale, to carbon credits, philanthropy. All of these things have to play a role in it, but we will only get there if we talk together. It's a little bit like the Barabag. I'm often accused of, I don't know, being in bed with the trophy hunters because, you know, I've engaged with the safari clubs and people like that. And yet I say to them, I would never have had the success I've had in Ruaha if I wasn't willing to sit down with people whose actions and views I didn't only didn't understand, but I found them deplorable. 
but I, I wanted to sit down with them because I knew we must have some commonality. And from that commonality, we can have solutions. And that's the way that I think we have to look at building consensus and not just exacerbating the division all the time in these discussions. It's similar to the work that uh, my organization does uh, in regards to the dog meat trade in Southeast Asia. And you have to work with the farmers. You have to work with the market sellers. You have to work with the people who are involved in the trade in order to end it. You have to understand why they do it and provide them with alternatives. Absolutely. Otherwise, you're never going to be able to achieve anything. And, and the proof is in the results. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, we have to, everyone knows that this is the way they would do it normally. If you want to get to say, a better place, you have to do it in partnership with other people. And it shouldn't be about what I personally find offensive. It should be about what is the best solution ultimately for wider conservation and for local communities as well. As you were saying that, Amy, and I couldn't agree more on that last point you just made. You know, when I speak about this issue, I think like you said very clearly again in my opinion that you don't like trophy hunting i don't and i've loved lions since i can remember i remember watching george adamson in born free i remember reading books being obsessed for many years about it and working really hard and giving all my time and the idea that someone would accuse me of not loving lions because i have a certain point of view i find really strange and i was wondering you know listening to everything you've gone through, listening to the fact that your ultimate aim was to work with lions, but David McDonald made you go and work <laughs> with a tiny shrew. And then you went to with Laurie Marker and then eventually you've worked so hard. You got to the Ruaha and you set up this amazing project. You've seen lions being killed, the carcasses. You've had two years where most people would give up. And you know, like I said, some nights in your tent crying, but you still went through with it. How does it make you feel when people maybe accuse you of not loving lions or accuse you of being on one side instead of the other? How does that actually make you feel as sort of as an individual? I think it can absolutely make you feel very frustrated or upset or angry sometimes that people are characterizing us in a way, in that way, because you think exactly as you said, you've been through a huge amount to, you know, I don't think many people necessarily are going to be doing lots more than I've necessarily done to to really show that they are passionate about it. And this is passionate in the way of being apart from my five-month daughter and I flew back to Africa after having her. Just all these different things, being everything from being bitten by venomous spiders and ending up in hospital to, to all those kinds of things we've talked about. I mean, this is personally something I am deeply committed to and I'm passionate about. And on a personal note, I remember I was talking to my daughter not long ago, and she said, when I grow up, I want to do what you do. I love lions. I want to go and be with lions. And it, it really got me because I thought how terrifying that when she is grown up, will there be that opportunity for her to do it? And this is just one generation. This is this is the next 30 years. And I think it really, because I'm so emotionally connected, and when people say, you know, you're, you're not emotional, you're not passionate about it, it couldn't be further than the truth. I'm absolutely passionate about it. So there is a resentment about being characterized that way. But I also understand it because I understand that I used to feel that way. You know, I used to very much understand those sort of simplistic narratives and it's my job now with all my experience in the bush which is only one experience of one place you know but with that experience to try to open up that dialogue and not take it personally but say let's actually look for even in this thing when you send me an email saying you hate me even within that the fact you sent me the email shows you really care about lions you care about wildlife so how can we build on that together and even when i get the use of emails 90 percent of the time i really try and engage with them and respond and i think that's actually very successful as well because people once they realize you're human you're passionate you do have shared values again you can build from that together exactly so do you feel in this the whole cecil controversy and you know is a global scandal 
do you think there was a sense of people conflating canned hunting with trophy hunting a little bit, Amy? I know this is a very, you know, you might not have an opinion on it, but but for me, and, and I was the same, you know, I, I used to be on the other side of the argument. So I get all that passion and feeling, but I, I did some more reading and I, I've sort of changed my mind slightly. Do you feel there's a little slight purposeful attempt to try and move that water in order to promote the issue against trophy hunting when I'm led to believe that Cecil was a canned hunt in some regards. I might be wrong on that, Amy. So to clarify, Cecil wasn't a canned hunt. It was illegal in terms of the land that it occurred on. But I completely agree with you. There is absolutely a very intentional, I think, in many cases. So there's two types. There is the conflation of canned and wild trophy hunting. And sometimes that just happens because people don't genuinely understand. For the average person, they just don't understand the fact that these two are very different. Whereas one like Cecil, like the animals around Ruaha and the game reserves there. These are wild ranging animals, you know, that have thousands of square kilometres to range in. And that's a completely different kind of hunt that maintains that habitat. And that's the benefit of it, is the maintenance of that wild habitat. That's very, very different from the canned hunting or captive bred hunting, which tends to happen in South Africa, where animals are bred specifically for this, released into small pens and shot there. I mean, even small fenced enclosures. So those two things are very different. And I think because the latter is so emotive, the candle, the captive bred hunting is so viscerally horrible. And often it can involve females and things in South Africa. So all of those things press the emotional buttons even more. That that topic is then used quite intentionally, I think, by many of the bigger campaigns to hype up antagonism towards wild trophy hunting, even though that's quite a different beast. So those are the two things I do think they're absolutely interlinked. And I think people know often the bigger organisations certainly do know when they're doing it. If they don't know when they're doing it, they should know when they're doing it because they're very, very different uh, activities. I couldn't agree more. And the fact that I got it slightly mixed up in the question kind of shut and I was involved back in my previous sort of voluntary roles at the time. The fact that I got it mistaken as well kind of illustrates the, the point you've made, really. I suppose a really maybe a good final question maybe for you would be, what do you see for the future to do with lion conservation? Are you hopeful? Are you concerned still? Are you pessimistic? What are your feelings about the future when it comes to lions? No, I mean, I don't let myself be pessimistic because A, that's just not naturally who I am. And B, I think the amazing thing that we have in people from when they're real, you know, you've talked about it, I've talked about it. You see it in children, that passion for the natural world, that love for wildlife. It's so innate in humans that I think it's very strong. And I think we can definitely build a better future than the one that we are bequeathing to our children right now. And so the way to do that is to build a bigger global partnership about this. And that's everything from leaders on the ground. For instance, we just did through the Pride Lion Alliance, uh, we just did a training for women conservation leaders in Africa. And so we put out a call saying we've got 30 spots to do this training in Kenya, not just lions, but all sorts of you know different people working on different species. We had 500 applicants for it. And it was an amazing training, women from 14 different countries. And it was just the start of this movement where you can bring people together and you say to them, there can be a better future. Let's take the passion that we all have. And I truly believe it needs to come from us working together. And that's when I see these divisive arguments and the fact that I can particularly be attacked in this way. I think we have to get beyond that. We have to understand each other's points of view. We have to identify those shared places and build each other up so that we can say, what is our common goal? Common goal is that we want a better future with more wildlife that makes human communities more empowered and more developed and is something that we have pride in for generations to come. And I think we can do it. We have the the tools to do it and we have the passion to do it. And the rest of it, um, I'm certain that we can deliver if we work together. Couldn't agree more. For people that are listening, obviously there are so many people that feel passionately about this, care enormously about not just lions, but conservation and the environment. And 
taking on board what you've said, we all need to work together to be able to do this. What are the practical steps that people, maybe who aren't necessarily involved in these kinds of projects, yeah. but what can people do to, uh, to enable that? So I think a really practical step is making doing your due diligence almost, but making yourself be a bit better informed. So don't just sign every petition that comes across your desk. That's not necessarily taking a positive step. It may not even be a particularly constructive and it, it may enhance some of that division that we've seen before. So I think, you know, look at the organisations you're supporting. If you're going to support or be able, and I don't mean just financially, I know many people can't do that, but even by supporting, by sharing information, look for those organisations that are present on the ground. Look for the ones that have built up community relationships that put relationships and local people, whether that's in America or Africa or whatever, at the heart of what they do, because that is, I think, where we need to go forward with. We don't want division. We don't want that single species, single issue focus. And by getting yourself more engaged and more informed, you then share that out. And I think by creating that space and creating that dialogue for more shared communication and how we how we identify the place that we want to move on together, that's how we will have much more impact. That was amazing, wasn't it, Matt? It really was, Harry. It was so great to finally get to chat to Amy. She's She's lovely, isn't she? She's a really, really lovely person. She was so funny in the podcast. And, you know, we keep every week saying inspirational, but the work she has done has not only improved the lives of, you know, large carnivores like lions, but also the communities and all the other animals that surround that. It is a world leader, in my opinion, to do with working with people in order to help lions and to improve the lives of both communities and lions. And there is not a project you will find that does that better than Amy's project, Uruaha. It's just what an inspiration. Completely agree. She's doing all the things that you and I talk about as what projects should be doing, reaching out, engaging with communities, making a difference, making an impact, having local ownership, understanding the local community that you're working in. It really is just the absolute best example of that kind of project going on as well. And you can tell from speaking, she's just such an incredibly caring, passionate about the subject person. And that speaks volumes the time and efforts and years that she's dedicated to this it's uh it's really quite special it I, yeah i really like that bit you just said about it. it's really quite special because it really is and i think i think she eloquently and convincingly provides her opinions on the threats that are facing lions and the solutions and it's not a black and white issue it's not easy it's not simple that's why it's so difficult and sometimes we have to take roads we don't necessarily want to or you know, I just, I mean, I don't use this word lightly, but it's really brave a lot of the stances that, you know, that Amy takes. And um, like I said in the podcast, and I've said to anyone that will listen over the last few years, you know, oh, Amy's God, been, tell me about it. <laughs> such an inspiration to me. <laughs> you know, if we're going to save animals like lions, iconic species, and we're going to help communities and not just lions, you know, the other animals that depend on lions that are part of that ecosystem, we need people like, Dr. Dickman to carry on their amazing work and without your support they can't so please everyone share this bloody podcast with as many people as you can share the podcast and check out uh, we're going to post links to the Ruaha website on the description of this podcast and what else are we sharing Matt we're going to be sharing a link to National Geographic website and particularly their Big Cats initiative um, they do some amazing work Amy's part of that we're also, Harry, going to be sharing a link to 
the brilliant book called Darren, the Lion Defender on the charity Tusks website. And also, there was one other thing, Harry. We're also going to be sharing a link to Snapshot Ruaha where you can help and look at their work and get involved in the work the communities are doing to do with camera traps. And that, to me, is such an incredible example of listening to the community, them taking ownership. So the community are not only helping themselves, but they see a value in the wildlife that lives alongside them. And you can't get any better than that. So please check it out. And hopefully you will all appreciate and admire the work Amy has done. Um, as much as Matt does. As much as I his do. gushing fanboy way. <sighs> Unbelievable. <laughs> I wasn't not going to point it out. Yeah, no, like, in all seriousness, for most people, you know, they get to meet their idols or people that are on TV or, you know, people in entertainment or whatever walk of life. Amy Dickman's one of mine. And to be able to have a conversation with her was an, I was pinching myself all the way throughout. And for her to give her time to a pair of idiots like you and I, when we've only just started this thing and it was, I think it just says a lot about Amy as well. Um, yeah, so, absolutely. And she couldn't have been nicer. I mean, it's one of those things where people say never meet your heroes. But mm. from your point of view, I can only imagine she certainly lived up to the impression that you had of her. And I know, as you said several times on this podcast, and you've said to me privately, the admiration that you have for her and her work and the inspiration that she's had on your career. And so to actually finally speak to that person and them to be every bit as inspirational and nice and kind and passionate about their work as you imagine them to be was really nice yeah and i have her email address now which isn't in the restraining order so you know it should be does she know that nope it isn't so i have her email address uh, it's not going to be the you're not going to send the pictures to her that you sent to me are you listen I keep <laughs> you man there's a reason why my cl- i did not have any clothes on okay it was yeah, I know. You said it was a warm day and you just got out of the shower, but like, I still don't understand, A, why you had your phone with you and why you were bending over like that. I just... Um... I'd like to thank my mum for listening and supporting us <laughs> at this point. I'm doing well, mum. I'm doing well. Anyway, Matt. Yep. <laughs> who do we have next week? Harry, who have we got next week, man? Who have we got next week? Next week. On the podcast. Well, have I got a treat for you, Matt? And all the listeners, we've only got Peter Egan, actor, activist, and all-around really lovely person, Peter Egan. Famous for his acting roles in ever-decreasing circles from the 1980s, which, if you're old enough to remember it, was an iconic TV sitcom, Downton Abbey. Oh, yeah. Most recently, season two of Afterlife alongside Ricky Gervais, another wonderful animal activist. And for the last 10 years, Peter has been one of the most prominent animal activists going around today. He's just so passionate about animal welfare. And we are also very lucky at Change for Animals Foundation. I don't know if you've heard that organization. Never heard of it. Change for, Change for Animals Foundation. It's very, very, it's a really good animal welfare organization. And it turns out he's the patron of it and has been supporting us for a number of years on our campaigns in the organization. And Peter is going to be talking about his love of animals and his start in animal welfare, his journey, his journey of discovery about animals and animal welfare, which is so similar to so many people. 
and his activism and the work that he's doing and his passion towards animals. And it was just, it was a really great chat with him, wasn't it? Oh, it was great. I mean, how often do you get to speak to somebody like Peter Egan and for him to give us his time? It was just a real pleasure. And yeah. I'm sure that everyone's going to love that episode as well. He's so passionate about the subject. You, you get that from the episode. So I'm really looking forward to sharing that one with everyone, Harry, too. Definitely, yes. Mm. And so between now and then, what do we want people to do, Matt? Well, first of all, Harry, we want them to blinking well share our podcast, don't we? We blinking well do. We want you to share it, okay? Go on <laughs> animalchat.podbean.com and you can listen to not only this episode, obviously, with the incredible Amy Dickman. Harry, you can listen to seven other episodes with... Seven other episodes. That's oh, like all Harry. of the other episodes. Harry, do you like killer whales? Do I? Do you like dogs? Yeah, they're all right. Do you like men who like catching dogs? Yes, I do, but not in a weird way. Do you like to hear stories about exotic animals going loose and people rescuing them? Pretty much more than anything else in the whole world. Well, you're in for a treat because you can find that and much more at the episode one to seven of the Animal Chat podcast. That's like all of the episodes. All of them, Harry. It's all of them. It's the complete box set. You can also find us on Spotify. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us on Google Play. The mystery that is Stitcher. Who goes on Stitcher? I have no idea. I still don't know what Stitcher is. Who actually listens to this podcast on Stitcher? Um, and you can also check us out and the links for all those and all the other podcasts on our Facebook page, Instagram, and just get in touch. But mainly share it, guys. Come on. Listen, enjoy, review, and share. Share, share, share. There's only so many reviews that our loved ones can do, Harry, for crying out loud. It's true, yeah. Thank you to everybody that's reviewed it so far. Thank you for everybody that's listened and shared and enjoyed it so far. Thank you so much to everyone. And keep sharing it because it helps get incredible stories out, like that of Amy, her incredible work, but also our past guests. Share, share, share. And thanks very much for listening and see you all again next week. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye.